Today's guest is investigative journalist, author, and anthropologist, Scott Carney. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy the show. Last week, we brought on the Iceman and record breaker, Wim Hof. So this week, I've brought on author Scott Carney, who studied the Wim Hof method deeply and wrote a book about it. Scott's a journalist who set out to debunk gurus for much of his career. But when he set out to debunk Wim Hof, something different happened. He wrote about it in the New York Times bestseller, What Doesn't Kill Us. On this episode, we talk about the Wim Hof method and how and why it works, and Scott explains it very well. We also talk about other ways to challenge yourself to achieve better performance by putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. Scott loves to immerse himself in his work. With Wim, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro without much clothes in record time, and he loves putting himself into situations where he has to test his body. We also dive deep into writing and how to make it, especially as a freelance writer today. It's a fun podcast full of info you can start using today. Editorial disclosure, this podcast is for information purposes only. I'm not a doctor, neither is Scott. Enjoy the show. All right, Scott Carney, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. So I think we should just start, you know, your book, What Doesn't Kill Us, Makes Us Stronger. I read it last night, one sitting, which is a record for me, by the way, because I'm a little... That's amazing. It was really good. And I related a lot to it. I knew a lot of the characters. So I just want to start with four ways listeners right now can start biohacking their body to get stronger. Yeah. So that's the question. How do we how do we get stronger by biohacking? <laughs> yes. Like what are four things that you've discovered through your research? Because I know you've put yourself through all these crazy oh, things like climbing Kilimanjaro without it's a shirt. Like it's like you're dropping me into the middle of this big ocean of answers and I, and I have to just pull out just five. Okay, here we go. Get out of your comfort zone is like one of the biggest things that, that I would say was going to make you stronger because comfort, this, this thing that we have that is, um, say, homeostasis, this thing where our body is not doing any extra work, you know, being too hot or being too cold or being too stressed out or, or whatever, that is um, sort of narrowing our range of what we're able to do. So the more comfortable you are in general, the less uh, territory that you can expand into. Uh, so, I mean, as far as like a very, very general thing, be wary of that sensation that we have to be comfortable. Uh, that's, that's, I guess, the heart of, of this book. And then that goes way deeper than that. So when you talk about comfort, like you're not talking about like mental comfort, you're talking about more physical comfort, like just being, well, I guess it is mental too, but just be cold, be okay being cold. That's one. It's mental and physical, right? But mm -hmm. so, so with the cold, right? So, so let's narrow it down to just this one thing for now. But this really can expand into just about everything a human can do. Uh, but with the cold, the, your first reaction when you jump into, say, ice water or the Pacific Ocean without a without a wetsuit on, is to clench up and to have that sort of. <sighs> feeling where you're trying to, you know, I guess resist that 
whatever that external stimuli is that's coming in at you. And that reaction is this autonomic, sort of automatic nervous system response to heat yourself with muscle contractions. Uh, what you should do in that situation is actually relax instead. It's consciously tell yourself, okay, there's all this cold water around me, but it's going to be okay because it's liquid water. It's not gonna freeze you to death. I'm not gonna die of hypothermia or frostbite or anything like that. I'm going to be okay. And that method of relaxing in there is this like huge, almost spiritual change in your body. Because you know that if you're swimming in cold water, and I'm just talking about the ocean at the moment, you know, the first seconds are not that comfortable, but then after like 10 minutes or two minutes or whatever it is for you, it becomes pleasurable and enjoyable and fun. And, and the water hasn't changed in that time. It's you who has changed. It's your perception of the environment that has changed. And it's also your body um, meeting your perception. It's your body coming into your mind and your mind coming down to your body. So I think it's a little bit more complex than just saying, hey, chill out, literally, when you get in the water. <laughs> I didn't mean to use that pun, but, but I tried it all last week. The water's 67 degrees. It's really warm in the Pacific Ocean right now. Yeah. And I've oh, been wow. going without a wetsuit just a bikini or a one piece and trying mm -hmm. not to shiver. Right. How do yeah. I do that better? Because I haven't been successful. Well, it's not something you can do at all times, especially at this point, you know, you're an adult and you have gotten to a point where you, you have these long established patterns of not only mentally, but also physically, uh, that you shouldn't expect immediate resilience for something that you have been conditioning yourself for, you know, you told me that you were uh, in your 30s, right? So at least 30 years you've been doing this. But what you can do is start expanding your resilience now. And, you know, surfing, you know, that can, you might be in the water for five hours. I don't know if you're gonna be able to handle five hours without a wetsuit in 67 degree water, uh, but you can certainly handle an hour, I would guess. So with a lot of the things I talk about in What Kill Us, it's important to realize that the steps, there are some things that happen really fast, but there's also things that happen over longer periods of time. And it's important not to push yourself beyond your red line, as it were. Uh, but essentially you get in there and you relax and, and just that effort of relaxing is training your body to, instead of use muscles to heat itself, to use its metabolism to heat itself. And that is huge. And over time, what you do is you build up thermogenic tissues, which means heat producing tissues in your body, like uh, brown fat, which is, you know, you've probably seen this in all the diet magazines lately. Uh, brown fat is a is essentially a fatty looking substance in your body that's packed full of mitochondria, which are energy centers uh, for cells. And, and what brown fat does is it sucks white fat from your system and burns it directly for heat energy. And for some very sort of crazy reasons, most modern humans who grow up in the Western world don't have a lot of brown fat uh, when they get to adulthood. But most indigenous cultures who did not grow up with heating systems and cooling systems and sort of the, the environmental regulation and conditioning that we have available to us through the miracle of technology, the people who had to depend on their bodies to deal with the environment, they actually have tons of this stuff. Is this for people in warm climates and cold climates? Yes, actually it is, um, especially if you talk about people who don't have access to uh, sort of modern, you know, modern facilities. Like heating uh, if, and AC. If, Right. If you t look at somebody, say, in sub-Saharan Africa, which is pretty hot, right? 
they in the day it can get scorching we can talk you know 110 120 degrees fahrenheit in the day but at night it might sink down to 50 at night or sometimes even lower than that and their bodies have to be able to deal with that expansive range of temperatures uh, so you know, at night they would be having, you know, they'd be using their brown fat to survive and they would be comfortable in that expansive range. While you or I who have grown up in, you know, in these really nice houses and cars and climate control and stuff, we are not nearly as resilient. And it's just because we haven't been exposed to those environments and therefore we haven't created the physiology in ourselves to adapt. So going back to this first question, you know, you said be uncomfortable. That could apply to getting in cold water anywhere. It doesn't have to be when you're surfing. It could be mm-hmm. a lake, a stream, a cold shower, and right. then, or getting into hot. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's about the range that you put in there. So when we talk about the Wim Hof training and you had Wim Hof on last week, as I understand it, yeah. he's all about the cold, right? And it's about getting comfortable in the cold, but he also acknowledges that when you you can do the very similar techniques uh, at the upper end of that spectrum by expanding the heat. And it's about, you know, that contrast between heat and cold, comfort and discomfort. And then by getting used to these environments, you expand what is actually comfortable. And, you know, when I was researching uh, what doesn't kill us, in one of the chapters, I found this really interesting book uh, from, I think it was the 1860s out of France, where this guy is talking about, you know, the how to use cold to train your body in sort of a very old fashioned sort of way. But one of the things that he mentioned was that normal people at that time are much weaker than they used to be in the time previous to when he was writing. And most people are, are comfortable uh, room temperature is 62 degrees, and everyone's comfortable at 62 degrees. Uh, but in, in the previous ancestors would be comfortable at much, uh, much lower temperatures. And as I was reading that, I was like, wait a minute, 62 degrees? It's that, <laughs> that is 10 degrees cooler than what most Americans are comfortable at right now, which is 72 degrees. And just in that time period, that notion of what comfortable is has changed pretty radically. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, just so the audience understands, when we're talking about cold, we're talking about cold water, we're talking about hot, we're talking about hot climates like a sauna, or Mm -hmm. I don't want people to be jumping into hot water. And also, it's very important to note that the reason why Wim does cold training is because it's way safer than heat training. Now, you can do stuff with heat training to expand your range. However, if you're going to like sort of jump into this whole world, um, start with cold, because if, if you get into a problem, right, if, if you get if you if you do push yourself past your red line, it's way easier to heat up a hypothermic body. So someone who's too cold than it is to cool down somebody who's too hot, uh, because, you know, you run up to above 104 degree body temperature, you're start you're boiling your brains, whereas you can get down into the high 70s. Of, of core temperature, which is really not healthy. You can get in trouble there, but you can still warm yourself up without doing like major lasting damage. So be careful with the heat uh, when you do these techniques. Yeah, we probably should preface, be careful with everything we're talking about <laughs> on, on this show. You know, consult a doctor. <laughs> this is for information purposes only. But, you know, Scott, you have dug a lot into the information of this. So maybe you could describe a little bit about Wim's method. Since we had him on last week, you know, mm-hmm. he, he gave us a little taste, but you really, you trained in Wim Hof's methods for years. Curious right. to know if you still use it today or, or how you use it, but just briefly tell us like, why does it work? How does it work? And what I was 
most confused about is, is it submerging yourself into ice water, taking a cold shower, or is it mm. the breathing? And maybe you can describe what the breathing is right. that makes the most impact on performance and health. So let's just talk about first, what's the Wim Hof method? method? Just tell me what the breathing and the cold is really quickly. All right. The first thing I have to say is something that I'm sure Wim uh, would sheepishly agree with, which is there is no Wim Hof method. <laughs> that what it is in reality is a Wim Hof set of principles. Got it. Uh, when I started learning the Wim Hof method in 2011, uh, he taught it very differently than what he is teaching today. Um, but the, the underlying ideas are basically the same, which is breathing and cold exposure. Uh, and these are two separate sort of paths that, that you have to do not at the same time, but you have to do it together uh, until you reach, you know, a, a different sort of physical state. And so let's look at cold first. Cold, it's essentially just exposing yourself to this stressful stimuli and then relaxing in it. So first to talk a little bit about the nervous system, I'm trying to not get too into the weeds in this, but we have two sides of our nervous system. One is the fight or flight responses, and this is called the sympathetic nervous system. So if you see a tiger and, and it's running at you, you're, you have two options here, right? You can go try to beat off the, you know, fight the tiger, or you can try to run away from it. And, and to do that, you trigger all of these neurotransmitters and hormones, uh, cortisol, adrenaline, all these things that give you a physical boost. The other side of your nervous system is the rest and digest side of things, where you uh, relax, where you know your digestion becomes really good, whereas in in the the sympathetic side, your digestion actually turns off. And in, in essentially, our whole lives, we're using one side of this nervous system or the other side of the nervous system uh, for everything we do. Now, when you jump into cold water, most of our innate reaction is to trigger those sympathetic fight or flight responses when we're in the water. And, and, and by doing that, we clench our muscles to heat ourselves. And it, it, shivering is, to, is, to, is you know, moving your muscles to create that sort of frictive energy to uh, generate heat. But what you can do instead, you have a sort of choice when you're in that water. You can go with that, oh my God, this is terrible. I have to fight the environment that I'm in. Or you can tell yourself, actually, this environment's not that bad. My, my mind, which is telling me to fight and or flee this environment is actually wrong. And I'm gonna tell you to go to the other side of the nervous system and to relax in it. And when you make that switch from clenching up all your muscles to relaxing, what you do is trigger your metabolism. You tell your metabolism to take over and to use this entirely other evolutionary hardware that we have to exist in that environment. And so the Wim Hof method in the cold is just getting you to make that switch from one side of your nervous system to the other by using this external trigger to do it. Uh, and, and the method is literally get into the cold and get used to it. <laughs> and, and once you get used to it, you find that the resilience grows very, very rapidly. You know, the first time I ever stood in the snow with Wim, which was in Poland, uh, in the middle of the Polish winter, which is the winter that stopped the Nazi army, right? So to give you an idea of how cold it was, uh, I could last five minutes in the snow in you know, my you know, underwear and bare feet before I was like, God, I gotta get out of this. Um, the next day I could last 10 minutes. 
the day after that, I was 30 minutes. And by the end of the week, I was climbing up mountains in my in a bathing suit with like no trouble. And it's it's one of these things that the body just does very quickly. And and you just need to be able to tell yourself that, hey, I'm not actually in danger here. So that first week you trained with him and you, you know, went up this mountain in your basically underwear. You also mm-hmm. said you lost seven pounds of fat. Right. Uh, because I was triggering my metabolism. So when you're, you know, metabolism just means the, the way your body deals with energy and uses the stuff you have stored and outputs it. Uh, in this case, that's heat. Well, um, because I wasn't shivering my way warm, what I was doing was was sucking fat literally from my system and then burning it as heat. It was amazing. And actually, if you want to lose weight very quickly, cold water is a great way to do that. You know, this, my book is not a weight loss book. I don't actually go fully in, down this path, but it was a pretty startling result and pretty welcome. All right. I think you just put like Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers out of business. I love that. <laughs> so then where does the breathing... Tell Oprah now. Yeah. I don't know why she hasn't... <laughs> Oprah and Wim know each other. So so I know this. You know, how, how does the breathing work into work. this? So the breathing is the other very critical and in some ways more important side of the Wim Hof method. Uh, and what you're doing is uh, trying to ex- put yourself in a stressful breathing pattern uh, that expands your ability to, to do something which is difficult. And in this case, it's holding your breath. You know, normally when you hold your breath, you, you, you know, it, you maybe you last, I don't know what your physical condition is right now, but let's say you last 30 seconds. It's pretty typical for someone who's pretty not much. trained. Yep. Maybe, maybe it's a minute, but it's going to be somewhere in that range. And, and then you get to that point at the end of that breath hold, right? Where you're sort of like clenching your stomach and you're like, oh my God, I have to breathe. I have to breathe. And, and at some point you say, okay, I'm going to breathe. And you essentially gasp. This is called the gasp reflex. Now, What Wim is trying to do in his breathing is extend the distance and the time it takes for that gasp reflex to hit in. And by doing that, he takes some degree of control over this autonomic process. Uh, And what what he's doing is uh, hyperventilation, which means fast breathing. Sometimes it's called superventilation. Sometimes it's called controlled superventilation. The terminology is all over the place. Uh, But what you do is you breathe fast like this. And the first time you do it, you're going to get lightheaded. You're going to feel tingling in your fingers. Um, You should definitely do this while lying down. And you do that for about 30 breaths or a minute. Um, Maybe you do it for five minutes. I mean, he, he teaches different protocols. But you do it for a while and you get pretty lightheaded and dizzy. And then you exhale fully and then hold it on the exhale. And you hold it on the exhale for as long as you can. And then you repeat that breathing pattern over and over again, uh, three or four times as you go. Now, the first time you'll hold your breath, if you can usually hold your breath on a normal breathing, you know, just like right now, hold your breath, you can probably hold your breath for like 30 seconds to a minute. If you do this super ventilation, you're definitely going to hold your breath for a minute, I would think. If you do multiple rounds, you're going to see that number increase. And, you know, when I was doing this with Wim the first time, I held my breath up to five minutes uh, with empty lungs. The physiology behind this is sort of tricky. Uh, it involves how you blow off CO2 from your system. Uh, you're changing the acidity, the alkalinity balance in your bloodstream. But, but essentially, what you're, you're telling your mind 
is that that gasp reflex, it's pre-programming to say, here's where you have to gasp. You're actually pushing it further and you're, you're forcing your body to say, okay, brain, maybe you knew a little bit better than I did. And by expanding that stress response, that gasp reflex, which is a sympathetic reflex, it's a fight or flight reflex, um, you actually gain control of this. And that translates over into uh, how you perform in cold water and indeed any stressful situation. Wow. Awesome. So you did this and you ended up climbing Kilimanjaro in a record time without much clothing. Yeah, all of those statements are uh, need like asterisks on them. So, so <laughs> I, I get it, but you know when you when you men up the mountain. So first of all, are you breathing through your nose or your mouth? Because you know when I talked to Brian McKenzie, who you wrote about in the book, he's right. like, "Look, the mouth's the biggest hole. That's that's where I'm breathing right. in." Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that's what she said. Joke. So Brian said, "You know, the mouth is is an easier place to breathe. Sometimes, sometimes your nose is stuffed up. Or do you, I usually breathe through my nose?" Are you, it sounded right. like you were breathing through your mouth. Uh, with the Wim Hof super ventilation technique, you do mouth breathing. Okay. Uh, some instructors teach it differently, but if, but what you're trying to do is blow off the CO2 from your system, which is the byproduct of respiration and trying to get that level as low as possible. And you should use the biggest hole you have to do that, uh, which so, is your mouth. So are you doing that, um, to climb up Mount Kilimanjaro? Yes. Uh, when, we're cli- when we're climbing up Kilimanjaro, the breathing technique there was uh, mouth breathing the entire time. So I breathed just like I did earlier uh, for about uh, 28 straight hours, more or less. I slept a little bit in there. Uh, and what was happening when I was doing the breathing – so when you go up in altitude, the issue uh, with Kilimanjaro isn't that it's a difficult hike. It's not really. It's that you go up so fast that the oxygen pressure – decreases so that every lungful of air you get has less and less volume of oxygen in it. And that slowly, uh, if, unless you have adapted to have more red blood cells in your bloodstream, which is what happens over the course of four or five days, you are denying oxygen to your extremities and your tissues and your organs and your brain. And eventually those things shut down and you die, uh, which is why it usually takes about five days to get to the top of Kili. What we did uh, again in 28 hours to the top is we decided to compensate for the decreased oxygen by breathing more. And so we breathed like that the whole way up. And then none of us got altitude sickness, which was amazing because before we went up, we told the Dutch Mountaineering Association uh, what we were going to do. And they predicted we would have a 100% fatality rate, which is really scary. Um, the U.S. Army predicted it was a little bit more conservative. They said we would have a 75 – sorry, a 70% uh, – uh, AMS, so altitude sickness um, uh, incidents in our group, which we didn't have. And it's only because what we did is we just breathed more and compensated with our biology the the deficits in the environment. Oh, that's so cool. So besides studying Wim Hof and doing right. this amazing feat, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, you've done a lot of other wild experiments to test human performance and to debunk gurus. So I think we should kind of jump and talk about that. You know, what other experiments first have you done to sort of test your endurance, mm. your health, your performance? In what doesn't kill us quite a bit. Um, you know, I'm working on another book now, which which is flipping the script on it a little bit. So in, in, in what doesn't kill us, what I was looking at 
um, mostly was the Wim Hof method, right? And and so it was climbing Kilimanjaro. It was it was staying a long time in ice water. Uh, it was it was running these cold obstacle course races. Um, one in particular in England called the Tough Guy, where the the year I did it, three hundred people came down with hypothermia, and I did it in a speedo. Wow. <laughs> and and what I found in that experience, you know, a lot of this was about cold that I was doing in, in that book. I, you know, I would do workouts all winter, and I live in Denver, um, in basically just running shorts and shoes. Uh, and I mean, I wear a hat too. And, and I did that just to expose myself to the environment, to give myself the natural signals we have at that time of year and get accustomed to it, which really changed and, and altered my physiology, which I go into pretty in depth in the book. Uh, but I think more importantly than talking about those results, it's, it's I found this trick about our bodies that I call the wedge, which is, you know, similar to what I was talking about in the Wim Hof method where you relax in cold water and it, you know, and all of a sudden your biology changes. But there's this other side of it, too. And when I was on the starting line of this like frigidly cold Arctic race in England, maybe not Arctic, but a cold race in England where half the people around me were in wetsuits to run this this race, uh, I was standing there sort of you know, pretty cold on the starting line. And, and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I think this is going to be too hard for me. I think this, I, we have pushed past my abilities, even the ones that I've garnered here. And, and I could feel that sort of stinging cold on my skin, that arcing of tightness across my shoulders. Uh, and then the, the cannon goes off because they use a cannon at this race. And, and all of a sudden I'm running. And then I realize, hey, I love running, running. I love jumping over things. I love getting muddy and wet. And there's actually a lot of fun in obstacle course races for me. And, and, and then I said to myself, and this was the key. I said to myself, that sensation on my skin, that stinging tightness, difficult sensation is actually the feeling of joy that I have for this race. And when I made that switch from pain to joy, all of a sudden, everything I was saying about that context, about that environment was flipped. And all of a sudden I had fun. I was to having a great race. And that translated into me being very, very warm for that whole race. And I am not a great runner. I'm actually, I would consider myself a mediocre or bad runner. Uh, and, and I didn't win the race or anything like that. But what I did do was I spent uh, three and a half hours with a huge grin on my face the entire time mm. as I was dunking myself in hold water and having an absolute blast. And this is what I call the wedge. It's this, it's this thing where you get into the environment and then you tell yourself that the environment is not what your first emotional reaction is to that. It's the emotional reaction that you, that, that you add to it. And it really helps to be having fun while you're doing this. If there, if there's a, a, a thing that you don't like doing, like, let's say you, um, you're a surfer, right? Surfing could be really, really uncomfortable if you hate being in the water, right? And if you're telling yourself, I hate surfing, this is terrible, there's no waves, or, or the waves are too big, or, or, or it's all white water, or whatever it is you're saying to yourself, uh, you just talk negatively about it, that surf is a, is a terrible experience. But if instead you say, I love being here, this is great, all of a sudden those negative things don't have as much um, salience in your mind, and interestingly enough, also your body. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for wiping out on bigger waves, you get tossed around when you're underwater and it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But, you know, someone once told me like, hey, you have to learn to love getting worked. 
And when I surf with a friend who starts laughing at me hysterically when I eat it, I start going for bigger waves and I enjoy getting worked. I think there's just mm-hmm. so much truth to that. And it sounds like you've learned a lot from suffering. <laughs> yeah. You, and, and also what is suffering, right? You know, suffering can be, you know, th- there's a point of course, where bad things are really bad. Like they kill you. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and we don't want to go that far, but, but the, the suffering that that process to getting to that really danger point is actually much more elastic than most of us think. Most of us preface, you know, you think getting white, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe out and therefore I'm going to break my back and I'm going to smash against a reef or whatever it is that's on your mind. Um, but most of the time that doesn't happen. Right. And, and there's things you can do to sort of be a little safer as you do it. And, and, but our, but our emotional state will automatically go to the worst reaction. Okay. I'm going to go out surfing and get eaten by a white, great white shark. <laughs> Uh, and it doesn't always say that there's a huge gap between the horror story and and the, the mere discomfort, the mere bruise that's going to go away in a day or two. All right. So, so I know you can't talk about your next book, but maybe you can give us like a little premise of the kind of things you're doing to test your body for the next book, The Wedge. So if the Wim Hof method is about cold and breathing, right? Those are two environmental stimulus that have a whole bunch of impact on your autonomic nervous system. The next book is questioning what other stimulus can I throw at my body that I can have some degree of control over and change my interior physiology. So I'm looking at, for instance, heat. I'm looking at our our sensations of taste uh, I am exploring sensory deprivation and fear. So like this is like a Joe Rogan Fear Factor show that you're putting yourself through. I know. Maybe. I haven't watched Fear Factor in, since I was about 15. <laughs> I so. mean, that, that's kind of <laughs> when it came out. But but I'm just imagining yourself eating like worms and putting yourself in cages of snakes and spiders and sitting in saunas. I'm really excited for this book. Not, not even close, okay, but I good. love where you're going. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you're doing some crazy things that you can't tell us, but the wedge is going to come out in 2019. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, 2019. I'm aiming for July 2019, but there's a discussion with our publisher or my publisher, which you know, it's going to be a conversation. Uh, but as soon as I can, because I am actually in the process of finishing it, I have the full manuscript in front of me right now as we're talking. And I'm basically done with it. So it, it really has to do with production timelines at this point. So I want to talk to you about writing. But before, before we get into writing, I mean, you're married. I haven't heard a lot of female perspective on doing these wild challenges like the Wim Hof method. Sure. So your wife, you said, does a lot of the things with you. Yeah. And I think what I should do right now is go grab her and so you can get it right from her mouth. Awesome. Um, so if you hold on for just a second, I'm yep. going to go track her down. Hi, Shelby. Laura, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. So I'm really curious. Your husband says he does these crazy wild things. And I'm always curious about the female perspective from all this. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of firsthand accounts from women, you know, doing these wild stunts like climbing Kilimanjaro and doing these obstacle course races in in minimal clothing. I'm curious to know what you do and and how how it's affected you. I am also a journalist and I find what he's doing um, particularly interesting and I do wish I could go on some of these adventures. The timing just doesn't always work out. But, you know, 
the stuff that he's been learning about and reading about and the experiences he's had, I've been, he's brought some of that back and we've been able to kind of play around with some of that here at home, just like even when we're going on hikes or anywhere where there's cold water that we can jump into, or I, I get, I get a little taste of it. Um, and some I want to do more of, and some he's welcome to go off and do by himself. <laughs> Have you noticed any health changes in your own body or like weight loss or? I did find like, especially doing the Wim Hof breathing, that was extremely helpful for sort of bringing down anxiety, especially mm. when I would start to get stressed about work or other things like that. Like doing the breathing every morning kind of reset the baseline at a lower level so that as the day progressed and as things got more stressful or um, you know, anxiety inducing. I just felt calmer going into to that kind of stuff. Um, I also, I think that it also did improve athletic performance to some degree from the standpoint that you're, you know, you're doing this breathing and you're flooding your body, um, with oxygen and blowing off carbon dioxide. And so when I would go exercise later in the day, I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like my endurance was better. Yeah, those are the exact two things that I've noticed mostly with the method, just anxiety, especially on deadline. Yeah. So I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Laura. I, re I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Awesome. Take care. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, Scott shares about writing and more. This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand that's big on protecting where we play outside. As stewards of the outdoors, REI gives away 70% of all profits back to the outdoors. Since 1976, REI has invested more than $77 million through partner nonprofits to help create, improve, and sustain access for all to inspiring outdoor places. They're also eco-friendly. They use 100% renewable energy to operate, and they built the first largest and most sustainable net zero energy and LEED platinum distribution center in the country. On top of that, they've partnered with over 66 brands in the outdoor industry to enhance the sustainability of their products. Their motto, a life outdoors is a life well lived, is one I definitely stand by. Learn more, take classes, go on experiences, find a store near you and get the gear you want to get outside at REI.com. So you've done all these wild things. I can't wait for The Wedge to come out. I think it's going to be a great book. I love that in your last book, you interviewed James Nestor, who we've had on, and we probably will have on Brian McKenzie too. But I really want to talk about your wild idea to pursue this pretty unusual career path, you know, in your oh, career. Yeah. The insanity of, of being a writer in the modern world. Well, and you've debunked gurus. So ah, let's talk about why the subject and, and how you became a writer. So... It's it's a long story um, to how I became a writer because I started out as an anthropologist uh, where I was, you know, I graduated college and I was looking for something to do with my life. And I knew I always loved traveling. and I loved getting into adventures. And for somehow I got into my head that getting a Ph.D. in anthropology would be the way to do that. Uh, it turns out that that was a really bad idea because all you do is sit in a in a course classroom or a university and you it takes you 10 years to write a book that no one reads. <laughs> I appreciate uh, this because this was my thinking in college too. And I, I once convinced a teacher to let me create a class on anthropological journalism. <laughs> that actually, I think there's some, some legs to that. Because so, you know, my interest in anthropology it underlies everything that uh, I write nowadays. Mm. Um, but I wanted to make it 
for a more popular audience. So I got to the dissertation of the PhD and I dropped out. So, you know, three or four years wow. into grad school, I was out. Uh, and I will never finish that dissertation. But it, 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 all of my work asks this question is, what does it mean to be human? What is it, what is it about us that experiencing the world and the environment and the, the variety of social interactions and pressures? Uh, what is it about being alive that is special and interesting? And, and, and you know, I got into debunking gurus because of a, a sort of a, a pretty tragic event that happened early in my career, uh, where I was leading a, a group of American college students through North India. I was sort of in between being a journalist and an anthropologist at that point in my life, mm -hmm. and and we went on this, uh, let's see, uh, eight day, nine day. Um, silent meditation retreat in the Tibetan tradition where they're teaching us about enlightenment and, and spiritual powers and bliss and nirvana and all that stuff. And at the, the last day of the retreat, one of my students, the, the best, brightest, prettiest, most well-adjusted student, uh, climbed up to the roof of the retreat center where we were staying and jumped off to her death. Mm. And, you know, I was the person responsible for bringing her body back to the United States. There was a murder investigation. I mean, it was a big horrible wow. event. And, but the thing that, 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 you know, sort of stuck with me most is that I, you know, as part of the investigation, I had to read her journal. I had to know, have get some answers as to what was going through her head. And it wasn't that she was depressed and wanted to take her life because it was, everything was so horrible. It was the opposite. It was, she was so close to enlightenment, so close to becoming what they call a bodhisattva, which is essentially a Tibetan angel. Um, so close to essentially superpowers uh, that all she had to do was leave her body to get to that to that moment. And and this just floored me because how could that search for sort of spiritual transcendence and bliss and perfection end up so horribly tragic? And and basically my entire career revolves around that point early on. And, you know, the, the first book I wrote about was organ trafficking around the world, which really stems from me being uh, in close proximity to a, a dead and rotting body for three days in 110 degree heat in India uh, and watching people argue over her body parts. That's a whole different conversation. Um, the second book was about that, that experience of, of transcendence and madness. Uh, and I wrote a book called The Enlightenment Trap, where I, I don't only look at her story, but other stories of people who are pursuing superpowers through um, spirituality, um, oftentimes Hindu and, and Buddhist spirituality, but it really applies to every sort of uh, intensive spiritual experience where you start meditating or praying, you feel like you're special in some way, and how that can go terribly wrong. So I, I told the story of two people who died, or one person who died on a mountaintop in Arizona meditating until he died. Uh, and how easy it would have been to avoid that if he just had a slightly different perspective on what was happening around him. Wow. And, and he was following this guru who, who basically taught and, and preached that he could, you know, teach you to levitate and walk through walls and, you know, all sort of these sort of miraculous powers. And so when I heard about whim, I was like, oh my God, this guy's doing the same things. He's saying you can go exist on you know, an Arctic iceberg and, and have this superhuman resilience. And he's got a meditation technique that can treat you to do it. And plus it's gonna cost you a little bit of money. I was like, he's just another scammer. So I flew out to go see him with the complete intention of writing this article that was saying, you know, look another charlatan uh, and he's gonna, I'm gonna debunk him and just go on with my normal career. But the problem was it worked. 
I, I, you know, after, after a week I was climbing up mountains and I was meditating on the banks of icy rivers and all the snow was melting around me. I mean, it was amazing. And I, I, what I saw there is that there's, while there is this potential for madness and craziness and going too far, there's also something very beautiful about these experiences that you can take something away that is, you know, I don't want to say miraculous, but uh, surprising. Mm. So where did you publish your first story? Oh, ever? Oh, I mean, I, I, I the first story was in uh, Nerve.com. The first real story I wrote was in Nerve.com, which was a sort of a lefty sex positive uh, paper. And it was about me ju- jumping into a clinical trial for the erectile dysfunction drug Levitra. Um, and, and being surrounded by people who are making a living doing these trials. It was pretty funny. And I thought, wow, this is great. I'm making money as a, uh, you know, from the clinical trial, but I'm also making money from, from the, the newspaper that was, was paying me. And, and, and in three weeks, I made more than I had in six months as a graduate student. And I knew that the path to riches was in journalism. <laughs> And then when, when were you like proven wrong about that one? Was it quickly after or like the next week? (laughs) Um, but uh, you know, maybe it had coming from sort of not making very much money. It has made it much easier to be a freelance writer. And I started, you know, I moved to India, uh, uh, and this was around the same time that my student died and I started writing for Wired and Playboy and Mother Jones, NPR, you know, there's a, li- you know, and you know, all those magazines that sit on the backs of, of, of toilets uh, all around the country, um, you know, the place of honor and exclusively long form stories that have to do with the big questions. And that has been my career since then. And it's been, you know, I'm so grateful for that, that I have a life where I can ask really interesting questions and, you know, live a middle class life while doing it. I mean, I think I, I find myself incredibly fortunate uh, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, taking, you know, that career as a writer uh, very, very seriously and, and focusing not only on these really cool questions and these cool stories, but also the business side of the right uh, of the industry. Because, you know, let's face it, publishers and book publishers, magazine publishers, you know, anyone out there that's a business that you're working with is there to make money off of you. And oftentimes the contracts are not very favorable. So I learned how to negotiate well and, you know, do things that that made it possible uh, to be a writer. So there's a lot of people, first of all, thank you. And your your career path is awesome. And I, I didn't realize that Playboy had such good articles until one of my mom's old professors had some in his bathroom. And he was like, no, I was like laughing. And I'm like, mom, he has all these Playboys in his bathroom. And uh, she's like, they also have a great art department. Yeah. I think they have, yeah, they have great, <laughs> awkward, <laughs> but like they actually, your article in Playboy about Wim is amazing. And I used that to research a story I wrote on him for outside. So thank you. Um, but really what, I, what I'm curious is, you know, a lot of people who listen to this show want to be writers. What yeah. advice do you give to people who want to make it as a writer today? So the first piece of advice is go to my website and download my video course. Done. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so I do have a video course which talks about this stuff because I have been um, a passionate evangelist for freelance rights for a very long time and freelance you know, how to fight back events. What I see is a very predatory publishing environment for writers where it's very difficult to make a living because the people you work for do everything to take 
the equity out of your work and give you really peanuts in return. I mean, it's, it's really hard to be a writer now and writing rates have not gone up since about 1995 in America, where it was, when it was a dollar to $2 a word was standard back then. And now it's like 50 cents to a dollar a word is what a lot of people are getting paid or even less. Mm -hmm. And that's horrendous. And a lot of it has to do with writers just being very, very bad at negotiating uh, and, uh, and, and being very disempowered when they, you know, you get a job from the New Yorker, you know, and you're like, Oh my God, I'm in the New Yorker. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me because the New Yorker is considered a pretty prestigious yep. magazine. And then you read the contract and the contract's like, we own you. <laughs> and, and you're like, okay, great. You could own me, but I, at least I have a byline in the New Yorker. Well, that's the exact wrong attitude to have. You need to be like, well, great, New Yorker, you liked my piece, you accepted my pitch, which took like eight months to do. Uh, now my pitch has value. Now, now let's start negotiating. And most writers just don't have that perspective on mm. things. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, I, in this video course and in, in, in sort of, you know, several guidebooks I've written, it's very important to treat the writing career as a career and realize that the money you get from writing allows you to do that research that you wanted to do in the first place. And if you're bad at the money side of things, you end up in PR, right? You end up, you know, not doing the things you want to do because you can't make enough cash to support yourself, you know, because we don't want health care, we want rent, we want groceries, we want these very ordinary things. And I say, I say this thing in, in my you know, a lot is that, you know, writers should be able to dream of being middle class. And I know that sounds sort of crazy because we should be, you know, we should be saying writers should dream of being rich. Right. But middle class is like really hard to achieve as a writer. And I, and I think that that first we have to dream of something reasonable before we even think about bigger things. So that's some, some basic stuff. And, I, and, you know, I think that when you're writing, I think it's very important to, to think big about your projects. You know, think about ideas that aren't just an article that you write once, but an article that can grow into a TV show or a book or a T-shirt line or an amusement park or anything in the contracts that say that they own. You want it to grow into that stuff and you want to own it. You need to be able to say no a lot to contracts. You need to go into contract negotiations with the idea in your head that you're definitely going to say no to whatever they 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 offer you, because if you don't do that, then you just you don't even negotiate. Um, you, you need to pitch multiple magazines at once. So if you have this killer idea, which is amazing, you need to pitch. 10 magazines, that same idea, and ha let them fight over how much they want it versus just giving it to one and hoping that one editor gives you the deal of a lifetime, which never happens. That goes against everything I was ever told. It was like you pitch one magazine, you wait, then you pitch right. the other one, then you wait. Right. I always hated doing that. But who told you that? Uh, an old writer. Or the editors. <laughs> no, it was that? an old Esquire writer. But but I, I laugh because you also said... If you don't make it as a writer, you do PR, which I would do in between writing assignments because PR <laughs> takes no work and it's so easy and you get paid so much money. It's true. And and I love I love this. This is good advice. But even to brand new writers, this is what they should do. Yeah, brand new well, brand new writers, there, there's a you know, you need to establish yourself. Exactly. But you, you don't do that with articles. You do that with a fancy website that makes you look badass. Right. You, you, you don't have anything to lose uh, at the same time. You don't have anything to gain. So, yeah, I mean, even your first assignment, you need to negotiate because you're learning this two sets of skills at the same time. You're learning how to write something, but you're also learning how to be a writer. 
And though, and if you don't do both, if you just focus on one side, you get better and better at one side, but you don't get any better at the other because you never feel good enough. And if, if, yeah, I mean, I would say even your first assignment, I mean, you don't have as much leverage on your first assignment. That's true. But you can certainly try a little bit because I promise you the first offer that a magazine gives you is not their best offer ever. Like, why would they ever give you their top offer that they're willing to give straight out of the gate? They need to leave room in their contracts. And every magazine has two sets of contracts that they keep on file. There's the the first contract they offer. And then you say, no, no, no I, this is all wrong. Do you have another contract? And then they send you their second contract, which is more lenient. Uh, and they all have it. And they all say, oh, I'm so sorry. I sent you the wrong contract. They they all have that in, in their in their just their file where they keep the contracts. It's already been pre-negotiated. So you have to push back. I love this. You know, most writers have read a lot. Any books you could recommend, especially for this audience, which tends to be adventures? I have four books that that I think are great. Uh, one is The Tiger by John Valiant, which is a, about a big cat in Siberia that seeks revenge on the hunter that tried to kill it. It's a nonfiction and it's amazing. My favorite book of all time is Old Man and the Sea by Hemingway, yeah. be, because it's about a man and a fish. And, you know, that's that's all it's about, <laughs> and and the struggle for, for life itself. And another book sort of in that sort of like stressful, like can we do it category is Beyond the Kingdom of the Ice by Hampton Sides, which is about an Arctic expedition uh, to, to reach the North Pole by boat, which didn't go very well for the people in the boat. And it's, you know, one of those Shackleton-esque uh, yarns, and it's great. And then most recently, I read this like two weeks ago, a book called Children of Time, and I don't remember the guy's name who wrote it, but it won the Hugo or the Nebula Award uh, a couple of years ago. And it's about the distant far, di it's science fiction, it's about the far distant future of humanity. And it is just really good. Uh, if I tell you anything about the plot, it's just gonna sound too crazy to explain, but it has to do with very intelligent jumping spiders and the humans that love them. This is a great summer reading list. We've got science fiction, <laughs> classics, Contemporary. I love it. What were you like at 15? I was a, a long haired dork wearing skids. Uh, I was terrible. Uh, I was really uh, awkward. I, who wasn't awkward at 15? Come on. But I would say, you know, every every decision in life that I had before has led me to being here. Even the mistakes have led me to being here. And I really like my life right now. So I wouldn't change really anything. But I would say, and, and this is just randomly on my head recently. So I went to vi back visit my parents like two weeks ago and uh, and they live on the East Coast. And you know how when you move out of, in high school, you leave like a box of stuff behind yep. that never actually comes home with you. Yep. Well, I went and retrieved the box. Uh, oh. and I'm, you know, I'm 40 now, basically. I've, I've turned 40 in a few days. And in the box was uh, like 40 books of of Dungeons and Dragons, these <gasps> playbooks for Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like addicted to this game for like 10 years. I played it all the time from probably the age of like nine or 10 to about 18. And then I left all the books at home in my in that thing. And I think that D&D, &D, more than probably anything else, has presaged me being a, a writer because it's about adventure. It's about creating stories. It's about, you know, thinking about how the underlying rules for how the universe works. And I think I learned as much from D&D &D as I did from high school. 
It could also be because I played D&D in the back of classes a lot. So maybe that's all I learned. Um, I can't believe you're a Dungeons and Dragons nerd. This is awesome. And <laughs> you have this great story about how it helped you. I, I think that's respectable. All right. I, I mean, I'm definitely a dork. I'm like, in my heart of hearts, I'm a dork. Uh, but I think we all I like, are. I like having adventures. I think everyone's a dork deep down inside. And I appreciate <laughs> the honesty. And I appreciate you for busting on me because I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really curious, you know, what advice you tell 15 year olds now, because I think that's like a really challenging age. You are for the most yeah. part kind of dorky and insecure and weird or I don't know. It's just an awkward time. Yeah, I think that it's really important to find joy and fun in things. Um, this is why I say that D&D is so important is because I had a lot of joy and fun in those things. It was my, you know, people say follow your passion, but I, I think it really is, you know, I know this is going to sound so yoga -y and lame, but, you know, follow your joy. Like, I think it's like that is something you find that gives you passion in your whole life. And maybe it's not your career. Like, you don't have to have the career that is all about joy. But if you don't have that passion, if you don't develop, you don't find the things that you find amazing, your your life will not be as amazing as it could be. And and, you know, I would say to kids, do the do the things that that give you passion and, and not necessarily what other people tell you you should be passionate about. Uh, it's it's there's so many ways to live a life in this world and they don't all involve getting a nine to five job and a 40 hour work week and eventually a pension and health care and then a, a retirement and then dying comfortably in, a, in, in your bed when you're 84. Like there are other paths to take. Well, thank you. Because that is what this podcast is all about. It's about taking the different path. Yeah. Just a little insight in this question we asked, because I, I'm just curious about you now. You know, if you could throw any party, who's coming? Are we playing Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> what are we eating and drinking? What music is playing? Are we like in an ice bath? Like what, what kind of party are we having? So yeah, my 40th is four days away and I've given some thought to this and I don't have a party planned out at all yet. And, and and that's for very mundane reasons uh, that I don't. But if I could choose any party, I think I'd like people from my past um, to be there. Like the, like the important, you know, like like the best friend I had in high school and like, you know, or a couple of those people and then a couple people from, you know, college and like ex-girlfriends who I don't talk to anymore. And, 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 and you know influential teachers for, you know, who, who, who taught me things. I'd like to like have them all there and sort of see where people are today and, and, and just see those influences. Cause I think that'd be really a blast. I don't know if it'd be a party. Actually, I, I can think of a number of ways that it wouldn't be fun. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> but, like, but, <laughs> like a fun funeral, but like you're alive for, it sounds really yeah. cool. Didn't you cross paths with those people on your book tour? Some of them. Yeah. I mean, some people I, I meet up with, but there's a lot of like vanished folks too. Right. You know, I am one of those people who's been on like the three year in one location and then switch, uh, for the last, uh, you know, 20 years. And so, you know, it, it's harder to keep in touch with people now. And it would be cool to like, other than Facebook and Facebook is like this, this pit of hell, as far as I can tell, because everyone is, is like perfect and having, eating the best food and look at that great avocado toast you had. And, and I mean, there's nothing real there, right? It would be cool to have like real conversations with people again. Ah, love it. Totally agree. And feel the same way about Facebook. So gear, this podcast is sponsored by REI. We're really big on gear. And you do go wild places and do wild things for a story. So what sort of gear is essential for you to have on trips? So I've pared down gear quite a bit. And whenever I go reporting in a far-flung place, which happens regularly enough, uh, I probably carry three things, no matter what, no matter where I am. 
uh, and it's a hat, a wool, like a, like a, just a, a, a cap. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like, like a beanie. Uh, and that's because it's the, the lightest weight, cheapest, warmest thing you can, you can bring with you. And it doesn't matter if you're going to a desert or a, you know, the Arctic, like I'll always have a hat with me and, and it's, it, you know, it, it, weight to uh, utility. It's the best. I always have a water bottle with me because hydration is important and a notebook. And really that's all I need to do any of my adventures. I mean, I have a cell phone which can do audio recordings and photos if I need to, but I think it's really important to be lightweight and, and to not carry much, the, the, we, we can get obsessed with gear and people like very frequently, you know, for instance, just yesterday on Facebook, I wrote that I was doing this chapter on a sauna and this guy wrote to me, he was like, Oh my God, you're doing saunas. Okay. Well I have, are you sure? What type of sauna do you have? Because oh. I, I have, I have a, a hot tub and like an ice plunge pool and I need to know if I need to get more gear. And I'm like, yo dude, chill. It's not about the sauna, right? It's about you. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's what's your relationship to these environments. And honestly, I don't own a sauna. I don't have a hot tub. I, I don't even have a cold plunge, anything like I like, it's about your body. It's about your interaction with the environment, not all the stuff we can use to insulate ourselves from it. So where can we find out more about Scott Carney? So I have all of the normal stuff, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters. Uh, and so you can find me on any of those. And you can just go to my website, scottcarney.com. And you can, you know, I'm sure there's all links that will link you up to there. If you're interested in writing, definitely check out uh, the course. It's at courses.scottcarney.com. And, you know, it gives you a, like a, a really good just primer on how to do all this crazy stuff that I've been doing and also develop your own career. If you're not interested in that stuff, cool, whatever. That's awesome. The book's available. What Doesn't Kill Us really has a lot of the basic techniques that I'll be talking about even in The Wedge later. It's got a great audiobook. I read it myself. So if you like the cool. sweet, dulcet tones of my voice, you can get more of them for eight hours. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Shelby. This has been fantastic. Thanks to Scott for coming on the show. You can find more of Scott's work at scottcarney.com. And next week, we have another Scott, the legendary ultra runner, Scott Jurek. It's a great interview. So make sure you tune in next Wednesday. Thank you for your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Here's two from last week. This one from Run Mama MD, who actually signed her name, Meredith Roth. Thank you so much. I'm going to summarize it. But she said, this podcast became my new running buddy after I moved last summer. I've met some new buddies, but I'm addicted to your show and I make sure to never miss a single episode. You knocked it out of the park again this week. Thank you for your show. I've never shared a podcast as much as I do with this one. Every week I send it to a different friend. So Meredith, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Another one who wrote, this is from MTGOATHG99. I don't know who this is, but they wrote, Wonderfully wild, great variety of guests, and Shelby is fun, relatable, and asks excellent questions for anyone who loves being outside. So these reviews really mean a lot to me. They keep this podcast going and growing. I really appreciate it. If you get a chance, write a review, send this podcast to a friend, and don't forget, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Make sure you check out REI, the awesome sponsor of this podcast. They make great gear, have awesome adventures, and you should definitely check them out at REI.com. See you next week. <laughs>